Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Becky Hendricks was born in 1941, lived a good and comfortable lifestyle for the most part for nearly the first five decades of her life. But her life changed dramatically on January 11, 1990. Becky and some members of her family were visiting the country of India on a missions trip. They were walking in the proximity of a stone pit that had been covered by banana branches. And one young man who was sort of helping said, said to Becky, step over here, mother. It was a well-intentioned directive but it changed Becky's life forever. She followed the instructions, yet fell through the branches deep into the stone pit, breaking her spine, paralyzing her from the waist down. She was 48. What followed were months and truly years of tremendous pain and suffering, both physical and spiritual. She writes of her time in the hospital in India and says, an Indian Christian, Brother Daniel, came daily to the hospital in Manipal, India, to sing and pray with me before the lights were turned out at night. Morphine was unable to arrest the pain, nor stem the incessant tears. But the Spirit of God within Brother Daniel filled the room and quieted me, body and soul. I fell asleep with the words of Scripture in song. In the years that followed, Becky returned to the U.S. and increasingly understood, as the years went on, the, the sovereignty of God in the midst of suffering. This was the way she was convinced God had planned for her to press on in her faith until he, had call, he would call her home. She wrote years later, Peace and fulfillment are not found in the absence of pain and suffering but rather in the awareness of the presence of God in my life. For Becky, living a life of following Jesus meant trusting him 
in some of the worst physical suffering any of us can imagine. And in the text Terry just read for us, for the Apostle Paul, I think, as well, living a life of following Jesus meant for him pressing on in both joy and pain. For every one of us this morning who belongs to Jesus, following him doesn't mean that one decision, that one sinner's prayer, and then life however we want it to look. Living as a Christian changes everything about the rest of your life. Living as a Christian necessitates pressing on in faith. We're nearly done studying this wonderful letter of Philippians written by the Apostle Paul around 60 AD. Paul, if you remember, is in house arrest in Rome. He's writing this letter to a church in a, in a city called Philippi in modern-day Greece that he had helped to plant years earlier. Uh, those Philippians had heard about Paul's suffering in prison. They had sent a man named Epaphroditus to minister to him. And now Paul, most likely by Epaphroditus, is sending back word to them, giving them an update on how he's doing even in suffering. Uh, He exhorts the church at the end of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 to unity through humility. And then in chapter 3 that Joe looked at for us last week, he, he shows how even in his own good religious pedigree, nothing compared to truly knowing Christ, even if it meant getting rid of everything he had ever worked for religiously. And in our verses this morning, we see Paul reflect then more about what this life of knowing Jesus, following Jesus, would look like for him, must look like for him, and indeed for anyone else who would follow and trust in Christ. So, as we consider his words this morning, these powerful words from the Apostle Paul, let's see three action items for the the Christian. In verses 12 through 16, press on. Press on. In verses 17 through 19, imitate, imitate. And finally, in verses 20 through chapter 4, verse 1, wait, wait. And I pray that our time together in God's word this morning would cause us to leave this morning differently than when we came. So first, press on, Christian, press on. Paul says there in verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. It seems like Paul is picking up right off where we left last week when Job preached that first part of chapter 3. If you were here, you'll remember, you might know that passage. There, Paul kind of recites a litany of all the ways he had ever tried to earn God's favor through religion and zeal. And he was the best. Religiously and zealously, he was the best. And he showed amazingly that when he met Jesus, he needed to jettison all that he had ever tried to earn. Cast it away. Humble himself completely. Never trying to earn God's favor, but instead trusting in Christ's righteousness alone for salvation. He called knowing Jesus the greatest treasure. And then he said there in verses 10 and 11, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He wants to become more like Jesus, suffering like Jesus, experiencing the resurrection power of Jesus. 
Christian, this is indeed what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be joined to Christ. It means to experience both his humiliation and his exaltation. Every Christian, every true Christian, will experience both. And Paul desperately wants to experience both. And to finally attain to glory. That's what he's talking about when he says, I haven't already obtained this. Look there in verse 12. He says, basically, hold up. So just so you don't misquote me, I'm not there yet. I haven't gotten to this point yet. I really want to know Christ more. I'm striving towards that, but I haven't yet attained the resurrection from the dead. But he knows by God's grace he's going to get there. And maybe, speaking from jail, sooner rather than later. He knows that God, as he said in chapter 1, verse 6, who began a good work in him would bring it to completion. He knows that Christ Jesus has already made Paul his own. He knows that God has this plan to save him, and so that fuels him on in in pressing on to know Jesus, to grow in godliness until the return of the king. Dear Christian, just take a moment to let that phrase sink in. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you have let go of your pride and your attempts to rule your own life and earn favor from God, if you have repented of your sin and trusted in what Jesus did on the cross, this statement is true of you right now. Christ Jesus has made you his own. Christ Jesus has made you his own. Maybe you struggle with fear that your faith isn't enough, isn't strong enough. And though you greatly desire maturity, you see your sin so clearly and discourages you daily. Maybe you struggle with the fear of man, the fear of the approval of others and the fear that you may be rejected or exposed for who you are. Maybe you struggle to be vulnerable and honest with your sin to those close to you, preferring to bottle up the shame and keep it to yourself. Brother and sister, this statement is true of you right now. Christ Jesus, past tense, has made you his own. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he has made you his own. I love Martin Luther's kind of conversation with the devil in his table talks. Where the devil comes and says, you've done this and you've done this and you're a terrible person. And Luther looks right back and says, yes. Yes, I am. But in summary of what he says, Christ Jesus has made me his own. Satan, in fact, you, you haven't even touched the surface of how bad I am. I don't even know how bad I am. But Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's given his life for me. Christian, he is creating you in glory and joy. He loves you. That's, that's not something you need to press on to gain. That's already true. We press on because Christ has made us his own not to make us his own, not to sort of twist his arm to do what we want. In a sermon and a text full of action items, rest in that. 
Paul goes on in verse 13. Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows he has been called to spiritual life by the grace of God. He knows that as a saved sinner through the pathway of suffering, his future is one of the utmost glory and joy. He knows that Jesus has promised him eternal life. And that this future, far from encouraging laziness or lethargy, instead urges him on to press into faith, to grow in love for Jesus, to be prepared for the prize. The Christian life, church, is one of rest, but not ease. The Christian life is one of rest, but not ease. We're not there yet. We rest in what Christ has done for us. Nothing can change that. We rest in what he has done and his unfailing love for us, but that doesn't mean we don't press on. We don't strive for holiness. We don't repent of disobedience. It doesn't mean we don't persevere with blood and sweat and tears. This teaching in Scripture, has often been called throughout the history of the church the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. So our statement of faith here at Loudon Valley Baptist is over 150 years old. It comes from the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. And one of its sections reads like this. We believe, that's us, church, we believe that such only are real believers as endure unto the end. That their persevering attachment to Christ is the grand mark which distinguishes them from superficial professors. That a special providence watches over their welfare and they are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. True Christians trust in Christ their whole lives. Of course, the going will be rough at times. Of course, temptation will win the day at times. But the trajectory of the true Christian's life from conversion all the way to death must be one that is upward. Completely trusting in Jesus as the refuge for our souls. For Paul, this persevering pressing on is akin to a race where where he runs with all his might towards that finish line tape. And he says here, if he is to run well, he must forget the things behind, and he must strain forward to what's been promised him, to Jesus, to heaven, to eternal joy. What are those things, though, that he's leaving behind? I think it makes sense that, first and foremost, he's thinking of what he's just rattled off at the beginning of the chapter. I did this, I did this, I was zealous, I was a persecutor of the church, I was a Pharisee, I was from the tribe of Benjamin, and, and that's where I counted my righteousness. He's saying, no, I'm, I'm leaving that behind. That pursuit is gone. I will never pursue God that way again. I will pursue him only through Christ. But I think we, could, we can kind of extrapolate that out and, and apply this to our lives in, in the sense that there are many things in our past that could distract us from persevering in the faith. Sin struggles, 
guilt, battles with resentment that we won't let go. I'm not saying turn away from those and pretend they never existed. Some, some of you need to go back and address those things. But for some of us, we need to stop agonizing about what we've done in the past and strive forward to the future. I mean this in the sense as not using the past as sort of a reason to say sedentary. Well, this, just ha- this happened to me. I, that, that gives me a good reason not to persevere. Put those things aside. We must press on. We must look ahead. The finish line is coming. Let's not be caught unawares when the king comes back. In verse 15, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. As we grow in holiness, church, we will grow in persevering. We will think of our lives in terms not only of the past or the present, which are essential, but also, and at times primarily, the realities of the yet to come. Press on. Press on. Next, Christian, imitate. Imitate. In verse 17, Paul continues, and he says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. I I remember running a a 5K a few years ago. It's a great kind of Jingle Bells 5K at One Loudon, if you've ever been out there. I didn't train a whole lot for it, though. Uh, It felt like quite a labor to run the same distance around the streets of Percival in the days leading up to it. But even though I was woefully unprepared, when I actually got to the race and joined in with hundreds of other runners of all skills and styles, and we ran together as one, I was fired up. I could have kept running, I think. My, my time was eh, not shabby for what I would expect it to be. The same, I think, is true for the Christian pressing on towards heaven. Pressing on in holiness. We need each other. We need encouragement. We need to hear from others who have their eyes set on the same goal, the same finish line tape that we do. And so Paul encourages the Philippian church to imitate him and indeed other believers, not because Paul has arrived, not because those other Christians have arrived, but because they're set on the same arrival point. Christian, I hope you can think of men and women in your life you've been able to imitate. I can think of one couple I've known for years who lost two of their children in tragic ways and yet keep pressing on. I can think of a dear friend who is same-sex attracted and is committed to celibacy and repentance while he presses on to Christ. I can think of a friend who immerses himself in God's word, and even when I see him discouraged, expresses the joy of Christ. Can you think of Christians in your life you've seen pressing on? Pressing on to know Christ, pressing on to share in his sufferings and in the power of his resurrection, even in the midst of trial. Are you seeking to imitate them? On the other hand, are you seeking to be imitatable? 
Can you see yourself saying something to another believer in this church like Paul is saying here? Can you see yourself saying to a brother or sister in the church, follow me, come along, observe my life, follow my patterns as we together press on towards Jesus? It said that imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. In the life of the church, however, imitation is one of the sincerest forms of perseverance. Pressing on. Another way you can grow in imitating is by reading books or short stories about Christians who have gone before. So I recently finished up a book, small book that's made for teenagers that shows you my reading level usually. A book called They Shall Be Mine old book published by Banner of Truth, just a simple book compiling stories of how Christians through the decades have lived their lives faithfully for Jesus, and it encouraged me. I needed that. I needed those stories for me to press on. Pick up a a biography or a book of short stories like that to fuel your own efforts and perseverance towards glory. Talk to me or email me this week. I'd love to give you recommendations. Imitate and be imitatable. Because there in verse 18, Paul speaks sadly of those whose destination is not glory, but judgment. You see that in verse 18. He writes, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul's writing this with tears. Tears perhaps for those lost souls. Tears for perhaps how those lost souls have worked, wreaked havoc in the church. We're not sure exactly who Paul is referring to. Could very well be the Judaizers that Joe introduced us to last week. So those who sought to pervert the true gospel of Christ by adding on extra Jewish customs and laws. But whoever these people are, they are men and women who have chosen as Paul says, not to set their minds and hearts on future glory, but temporary comfort. It's a sobering warning for us all. That, that phrase that might make you giggle a little bit, their God is their belly, actually means that for these men and women, it's their appetites that govern their lives, that drive them. They, they worship and see as ultimate the things of earth. Things that are good sometimes. Created by God, but when made ultimate, when made God, crumble and fall. So dear Christian, ask yourself, where are you looking for fullness of joy? Are you looking towards the future glory that is promised you? Or, or are you looking first and foremost towards the delights you have planned for this afternoon? good things, but they're going to fade away by the time Monday rolls around. As Christians, we, of all people, don't minimize the good gifts we find in this world. There is much to enjoy and to delight in. But as Christians, our greatest delight and our greatest hope and joy must always be in a glory yet to come. We're passing through. Our citizenship is in another place. 
We must not have our minds set on earthly things, but as Jim read for us earlier from the third chapter of Colossians, as those who have been raised with Christ, we must seek the things that are above where Christ is. So, that's great. We talk about that a lot. Eternal mindset, right? Good perspective. How in the world are we to know if we're growing in that? How are we to know that we actually are growing and having a heavenly-minded perspective, not one that is merely myopic and fixed on the fleeting things of the earth? A, a, a perspective that is upward, that has dragged our chins from looking down at our sin and our present circumstances up to what's coming. How are we to know how we are doing that? I think where Paul ends up is a good litmus test for that. Because that's our third point. Our third point is to wait So ask yourself the question, what are you waiting for? What are you most expectant of in your life? Are you waiting for that better job where you'll be able to set up a stable financial future? Are you waiting for that respectable, well-behaved model family that will always give you a good reputation in your circles? Are you waiting to lose weight and work out and look more attractive? What are you waiting for? What's your goal, your your end goal? Wait. That's our last point. We sang earlier the words of that hymn that I love. There is a higher throne. We sang of what heaven is doing right now. Eternity, worshiping our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we thought about the heavens thundering with the anthem of the redeemed. That's what we wait for. That's home. A person's citizenship reveals his homeland, his or her real place of belonging. And for the Christian, unlike many in our world today, there is no such thing as a dual citizenship. Our sole citizenship is in heaven. Heaven. Those of you with small kids have been asked, where is heaven? What is heaven? Dig into that deeper. We don't know a lot about it, but we know it's wonderful. We know, it's, we know for sure it's not merely a cloudy space up in the skies. It's actually the deepest reality in the universe. I recently finished uh, listening to all of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia again on audiobook. And I had forgotten almost everything about the last book. I don't know who talks about that much. The Last Battle, it's called. It shows the, the final struggle between good and evil in the fictional land of Narnia before Aslan, the lion who represents Jesus in the story, brings his people home, brings his people to his land, to heaven. And I was struck by how in Lewis's imagery, the future glory of the Christian in the new heavens and the new earth is so much more real than anything anyone has ever experienced. The water looks more real. The the scenery looks more real. Have you ever thought of heaven like that? Speaking for myself, I can often fall into thinking of heaven as just sort of ethereal or magical. But if heaven is where God fully rules and reigns, then heaven will be the most real thing we've ever known. That's where our citizenship is. 
That's where we belong. Paul says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, because that is the case, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The greatest appetite of the persevering Christian is in the glories that we will be revealed when our Savior returns. For this we wait. The theologian Alec Matir says, We belong to a far-off homeland and wait for the king of that land to come and fetch us. Our names are on the citizenship rolls there and our place is secure, but while we wait here, we must live as if we were there. Church, press on. Imitate one another. Grow in holiness, all as you actively wait for what's coming, for the glory that will be revealed, for the immense power of God that will be exercised in transforming our humiliated bodies into the exalted glory of Christ. As you press on this week, maybe engage in some holy imagination about what that day will look like. What will it be like to not have a lowly body anymore? We don't know a lot about what that day will be, but we know enough to tickle our appetites for how great it's going to be. Perhaps you're here this morning and you don't claim to be a Christian thanks for being here, and that does us a great honor. But if you'd be honest on the way out at the door, I I would assume you'd say stuff like this seems pretty weird and bizarre. And we get that. To be honest, we often think it's weird and bizarre too. But we also understand that as we look inward at our own hearts, we see again and again that we cannot and will not find ultimate satisfaction, find what we really want in what's just fading away. No, we will see again and again in our hearts that our hunger is for what's eternal, for what will never end. The Bible teaches that this world is corrupt, that this world will be destroyed. It says that our sin has stained God's good creation and deserves his righteous judgment. But the Bible also goes on to then teach that Jesus left his heavenly glory. We saw that back in chapter 2. Came into our corruption, took on the form of a servant, came into our fear, came into our sin, came into our pain, and bore God's judgment rightly meant for us. Jesus came to offer us salvation from sin, and he will come again to judge And to save those who are waiting for him. On that day, there will only be two types of people. Those who are judged rightly for their own sin and cast into hell. And those whose sin will be seen as placed on Jesus. Who bore that hell at the cross. Trust in Jesus and be saved. And Christian, our call, meanwhile, is to press on towards hope awaiting, as we'll sing soon in our last hymn, the, quote, consummation of peace forevermore. And consummation of peace. How's your running going? 
How's pressing on going, brother? Sister? Are you finding yourself lethargic? Earthly-minded? Consumed with the temporary and neglecting the eternal? Press on. We began today talking about Becky Hendricks, who experienced that tremendous physical suffering in 1990, yet trusted in Jesus in the midst of it all. Becky is still living. She's 77. She lives in Pennsylvania, and she's my grandma. She still clings to Christ. It's been a hard road. Recently, she's developed and and quickly fallen into dementia. She's forgotten much about who God is. But she still reads her Bible, and God hasn't let go of her. Even in her old age and her illness, she presses on. She's one to imitate. Who's yours? May we press on and fix our hope on what's to come. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it so clearly diagnoses our hearts and gives us the cure. Home in heaven with Jesus forever. Keep us, Lord. Keep us in our faith. Keep us striving, straining forward, chests out to try to break that tape. Keep us until you return. Amen.